So this week, uh, in preparation for today, I ran across some stuff that at first glance is a little weird, so I, know you, I need you to stick with me a little bit. Ancient Europeans, medieval Europeans, had some very interesting torture tactics. It's not just soccer that they torture us with. Um, they, they, have, they created some really sick and sadistic ways of punishing people. One of these was they would tie a victim to four different horses, and they would have the horses all run at the same time in opposite directions until that person was, let's just say, stretched out. Now, the French had a very interesting word for what they called this. It's distracted. Now, thankfully, uh, we don't have to live through uh, the modern day, our modern day lives, we don't have to live through ancient tortures, uh, but the etymology and the root of the word is the same. They called it distraction, distracted, which basically means to pull apart and to separate. Their plan to kill people was through distraction. Many of us in our lives, in our pursuits, in our prayer lives, in our time with God, in our pursuits and, and goals uh, to grow in our relationship with God or other people, uh, death doesn't come through catastrophe. It comes through a set of distractions. To be distracted means to be pulled apart, uh, and it means that there are things that pull our attention and our focus from what matters most. Distraction kills the best of us. It pulls us in different directions, divides our creativity and our loyalty, and leaves us with a sense of shallow discontent. Now, I know some of you guys in here are way too sophisticated to believe in the devil, uh, but Jesus talks about the enemy and the devil, and he gives us uh, a sneak peek at his motives and his goals in your life. And he says in John 10 and 10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come so that you may have life, they may have life and have it in abundance. The enemy's job is to destroy you, to destroy what God wants to do in your life, appreciation, gratitude, a real uh, growth in your life. And one of the ways that he does that is through distraction. Oftentimes, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. This past week, one of the things that we did that probably brought some of the biggest weeping and gnashing of teeth that we've ever, that we've ever seen at Renaissance was calling for a social media fast just for a week. And as of right now, the fast is over. Y'all can go back. See? Nah, look at y'all. <laughs> hey, last week we talked about social media being one of these things that just draws us in and it distracts us. The main reason is that social media programmers are not programming apps they're programming people. If you don't have to pay for a product, you are the product. The longer they keep you in it, is the more money that they make. The reason Facebook and these companies are worth tens and tens of billions of dollars is because they do this so well. As you return to social media, if that's what you're trying to do, or as you return to your favorite app, whatever that thing is that distracts you, don't go back the same way you did last week. Don't go in with no boundaries. Last week, one thing we mentioned uh, was that uh, one of the most sad and pitiful lives in Scripture is a person that says, who is like a city with no walls, meaning there's no boundaries, there's, nothing, there's no intentionality to your life. If you want to go back to social media today, uh, I know my wife is dying to get back on. I'm going to throw her under the bus real quick. Um, I'm going to look to this side, actually, for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Uh, if you're going to go back to social media, hey, iPhone users, you have that thing, screen time, you could set a passcode. Uh, I'm not strong enough to discipline myself. 
I put a passcode on my social media time, and I gave just the password so, if I'm, I, so that I just won't consume and consume and consume. Now, last week, we talked about a ton of these things and why it's so important. Uh, I can't spend that much time talking about it today, but I would love for you guys to go back and listen to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, we in Popeyes, everywhere. You can, wherever you can get anything, we're there. Uh, we are launching our brand new YouTube channel this week. Shout out for that. Yes. So please catch up on, uh, on last week as we kicked off the Distracted series. And the reason we kicked off this series is because you and I are just a very distracted people. Distraction comes so easily to us. Last year, in an attempt to have better conversations with my three-year-old, I read a book called Never Split the Difference. Uh, it's written by a hostage negotiator. And um, there's an alarming amount of similarities between three-year-olds and terrorists. Trust me when I tell you that. In the book, he recounted one of these famous scenes that we've all seen in movies where you have eight or nine people all in a room as they listen to this terrorist giving their commands over their phone. And they have it on speakerphone, and they say go, and they're speaking, and everybody is paying attention. And in the book, he says, that's actually a real thing. When the FBI is negotiating with these people, they have so many different people listening all at one time. The reason they do it is somewhat unbelievable. You would think that if you were to have a conversation with someone who's holding hostages, you would give them their, your full attention. But what they found over and over and over again, that even in the highest stakes possible, the human brain is so easily distracted that they miss things. So they bring together groups of people to listen because everybody is missing something at the same time. We're so easily distracted and we don't even pay attention to it. Now today I want to talk about something else that is pulling at us. It's not something that you woke up this morning thinking about, probably, but it is equally powerful to pull us away from what God has for you in your life. It's equally powerful to pull you, to lure you away from what God is trying to do in your life, and it's one of the tools that the enemy uses. It's our comfort zones. Now, last year, I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube, and I don't know what I started looking at. I think I started looking at barbecue grills, and then like, an hour later, I was looking at how the world is going to end. Um, <laughs> there's an algorithm and a correlation somehow. I don't know what it is. And like an hour later, I'm knee deep in conspiracy theories about, and I didn't even regret it after a certain point. The prevailing theory is that one day there will be a black hole that we can't see that because of its force will pull us into the center of it and our world as you know it will be extinct. Not just our world, but our universe. Comfort zones in some ways are like black holes. You can't see them, but they have a force that is pulling you uh, and it somehow pulls everything towards its own center. Our comfort zones are exactly that. You can't see it in your life. You didn't wake up thinking about it. Uh, you probably can't right now identify a couple of ways that it's shaping you, but it is pulling you towards the center, and it's making you the center. And if you'll allow it, your comfort zone will pull you away from what God wants in your life. Let me define comfort zone. Uh, it's a routine, uh, the routine of one's daily life. It's a psychological state in which one feels familiar, safe, at ease, and secure. Now, 
To a certain extent, comfort, don't, comfort is not a bad thing. Please do not hear me say that anything that's, that makes us feel good and safe and secure is bad. All of us who uh, are fortunate enough to have a roof over our head love that feeling of being able to lock the door and go to sleep at night. Comfort, in, its, in, in a lot of ways, is a good thing. But when we think about things in our life that have the power to destroy us, when we think about things that have the power to really pull us away from God and, and others, we tend to think about major things like an addiction. We think about some major catastrophe. We think about having to go to New Jersey or something that would just really <laughs> devastate us in our lives. But when the Bible talks about the things that really have the power to lure you, it's not usually the devastating things. It's not usually the thing that everybody, that you and everybody else can see. It's usually more subtle than that. The Bible talks about the enemy as a deceiver, one that operates in a way that is beneath the surface. Uh, years ago, when I was a kid, I grew up uh, in, in church, and there was a woman that I found out that was in a cult. And I just remember being like eight and my parents telling me, that lady over there is in the cult. Don't ever talk to her. And I was terrified of having a conversation with this lady, thinking that I would like say hello, and then she would work some magic, and the next thing I know, I'd be in an orange dress in the airport passing out uh, stretched pennies for donations. I thought that it was a really slippery slope into that cult life, and I wasn't with it. That's not the way deception works. Deception works by making you think something is a good thing when in actuality it's poisonous. This is how the enemy is described in Scripture. It says, um, 2 Corinthians 11 and 14, it says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning the thing that's shining in your face the most brilliantly might be coming not from God, but from the enemy. Our comfort zones lure us in that way. It makes us feel like this is the most beautiful thing to be had, when in reality, it's leading us away from God sometimes. Now, a lot of us, and if we're to be perfectly honest, we would even associate the presence of God with comfort and the presence of conflict with the enemy, when in reality, sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's God pushing us into confrontation and conflict and discomfort, and sometimes it's the enemy trying to lure us and lull us into a comfort zone to pull us away from God. Now, one of the things that I hope that we can get a view of today is something called uncomfortable grace. Uncomfortable grace. If I were to ask 100 of you in here, what do you, how would you define the concept of grace? I'd probably get a lot of good answers, but I probably wouldn't get too many people thinking about this notion of, of uncomfortable grace. Make no mistake about it, God's grace is so profound and so amazing that entire volumes of books have been written on it and still haven't scratched the surface. Most of what we understand about grace is that God gives us good things that we don't deserve. And if that's all we talked about for the next 52 weeks of the year, we would just be scratching that surface. This is especially important for you guys who came in here today who are doing things or have done things where it makes you kind of feel untouchable. Here's what you need to know. God is a God of grace. You and God do not operate in the same way. One of my favorite scriptures is in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1. And if you're looking for a good uh, first way to understand grace, it's God giving us good things. And we see it. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, of our trespasses and sins, 
according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Those two words, the riches of his grace, and then Paul follows up immediately saying that he richly pours out. So not only is God rich, God also uses his riches and he pours it out um, pretty heavily. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's rich, not like they're doing good, but like they are balling. <laughs> a few years ago, there was a couple at my old church and they found themselves somewhat overnight uh, making eight figures a year. The husband invented an algorithm which allowed people to trade stocks milliseconds faster than anyone else, and he was making so much money, his own words were, I have no idea what to do with it. They had a dinner party at their house, and I was like, I'm going, RSVP. <laughs> their apartment was so amazing that the rent was $27,000 a month. And that was just the rent that they were paying while they were building their house, which took them two years to build uh, down in Austin. They were rich. When I got to the house, I saw the chef, I saw the dry aged steaks, I was like, oh, we about to go in today. <laughs> they might not never invite me back, but check this out, listen. You would be a fool to go to a rich person's house and they're passing out dry aged steaks and you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. For what? They're rich. They're not gonna miss any of this stuff. They were passing around these $100 bottles of wine. I'm like, yes, I wanna taste that wine. As Rihanna once said, pour it up, pour it. I'm never gonna taste this again, yes. I don't have it like that. Rich people can do things that you and I can only dream of. You and I can only dream of paying $27,000 a month for an apartment. We can only dream of having a terrace that wraps around our entire floor. We can only dream of all of these things. But rich people can do it. Just because you cannot imagine yourself extending love and compassion to someone doesn't mean that's the way that, that God is bound to those limitations. God is rich in grace. One of the stories in Scripture that shows the riches of Jesus' grace uh, comes on his final march to the cross. He's on the cross, and there are men trained in the art of execution and torture. They place a, a, a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They spit on him. They mock him. What does Jesus say to them? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is rich in grace. He has so much of it that you and I could only dream of behaving in such a way. And that same grace, he pours out richly on us. This is a God that invites us out of our comfort zones. But grace doesn't stop there. We need to expand our theology of grace, which pushes us beyond God giving us good things that we didn't deserve and pushes us to the parameters of uh, his uncomfortable grace. Because as, as amazing as God giving us good things is, we're just scratching the surface as what God does. All throughout the Bible, over and over again, you see that God allows situations to happen in people's lives. God calls us out of our comfort zones so that we can come to the end of ourselves and see our need for him in the process. Let me put some Bible on it so y'all don't think I'm making this up. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, um, and you'll miss this. You'll miss this if you're, if you're stuck in your comfort zone. 
2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about grace in a different way. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we want is freedom from all of the things in life that are uncomfortable. We would love, and I would love, to remain nicely inside of my comfort zone, but there is an aspect of God's grace that pushes us outside of our comfort zone so that we can experience Christ's presence, not around difficulties, but through difficulties and through hardships. God gives us uncomfortable grace that doesn't take us around it, but through it. And a lot of us are so trapped in our comfort zone, so pulled by the lore of our comfort zones, that we miss out on God's activity completely in our lives. Now, here's a couple of signs that you are being pulled too strongly by your comfort zone. You might not see it, but here are some of the, the signs that you're being sucked into your comfort zone. Now, the first is a big one, man. We, we run away from difficult conversations. We run away from difficult conversations. Has anybody ever done this, right? There's something that you need to say to someone, and you're like, it'll probably fix itself on its own. Yeah, it, I mean, I'm sure it's going to get better eventually. And out of the 100 times you've said that, it might have happened once. The other 99 times, it's actually probably gotten worse or it stayed the same. Here's what I think Christians don't understand about difficult conversations. God calls you to speak with grace and to be kind and to find the right timing to say things and to not be combative. But God calls you to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers retreat to their comfort zone and stay there. Peacemakers engage, again, in a loving and a gracious way, but they're willing to have the conversations. Man, there's so many times where I, I've suffered the effects, the negative effects of not having a difficult conversation to be all the way live just because it was more comfortable not to say anything. And making that decision never led me in a direction towards God. It has always led me away from God. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Now, psychologists will tell you that comfort zones, to a certain extent, do serve a purpose. Uh, we are created to get along with people, right? There's nothing, I'm not charging you up, I'm not trying to throw the battery in your back to just start coming for people as soon as we leave. But in all of that, don't let, the comfort, don't let your comfort zone pull you into making a decision uh, that God might be leading you in a different way. Man, another huge, huge, huge area, and I see this so much, and if... Um, the more I've been a pastor, the more I see this in, in our lives. You know that your comfort zone has you locked up in a headlock when you'll never really confess sin to other people. You'll pray to God a thousand times, but you won't tell someone else. What that does is it locks you and it keeps you, uh, Scripture would say sometimes, uh, in bondage. There's a scripture in James 5 where it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in effect. In its, in its effect. It's crazy that the way that God has set up you and your life and you're thriving, if you're pursuing God in, in your relationships or in, in any aspect of your life, the way that God set it up is the only way, the only way you're going to find healing is through confession. 
And I know it's not easy. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a series on relationships, and we talked about some really difficult topics, uh, one of them being pornography. And in that uh, series and in the message, I mentioned that growing up as a teenager, uh, ever since I could first imagine, we were you know, stealing someone's uncles, playboys. And um, when I got to college, and I, when I became a Christian, I was determined, as strong as I could, to break every effect that pornography would have on my life. They did a, a study a couple of years ago, and they found that two out of 10 women and seven out of 10 men watch pornography at least on a monthly basis. This is also inside the church. In my own life, when I kept it bottled up, I struggled mightily. I might have gone a couple of weeks without it, but before I knew it, I found myself right back in the same habits over and over and over again. Do you want to know why? It was so embarrassing for me to go and to admit it to one of my friends that I was struggling with pornography, so I kept it inside. I didn't experience the healing that God was offering me until I confessed it. God was calling me well outside of my comfort zone and the pull of my comfort zone to say, bro, you don't, it's not that serious. You don't want to be the deep dude that ruins the evening. They were having a good conversation, and here you go lobbing in this grenade into the middle of the conversation. I'm not saying this conversation is meant for every single um, circle, but there needs to be some circle where you can talk about deep things that are going on in your life. Now, thankfully, it's been well over a decade for me since I've experienced or struggled with pornography in any way, but I'm, let me tell you exactly what was the day that progress started, the day I confessed. Your comfort zone will tell you, stay right here. You don't have to tell everybody. That will keep you locked in. God's will for your life is outside of your comfort zone. Another way that we know that our comfort zone has an allure on us and is luring us in is we're making life's decisions based on, based on what feels best versus um, uh, what God's will is for our lives. We're making major life decisions based on what feels the best for us right now uh, instead of really laying down our plans in front of God and saying, God, what is it that you would have me to do? I've spoken to a lot of people and, uh, who have left New York City for one reason or another, and if you're not from the city, I, I get it, man. It's definitely a, a, a struggle to stay here. Uh, I've met people with like, you know, five people in a one-bedroom apartment, and they're struggling, and they're looking for more space. And I said, listen, as long as you don't go to New Jersey, you're good. Um, and <laughs> No, I didn't say that. I thought it, but I didn't say that. And but a lot of times, people make major life decisions. They get new jobs. They move completely out of the city, and they've never even prayed about it. Yet in our lives, we say that we are followers of Jesus, but yet there's aspects of our life that we don't even pray about or think about. Now, I've seen this in my own life. My wife and I are going through this right now where we're deciding on school for my four-year-old. And we were at a, a, a cookout last weekend, and there was a dude there that was like, oh, where do you guys live? We told him. And he was like, yo, there's a, the best kindergarten program in the nation is down the street from, you, from where you guys live. And the principal goes to your church. I was like, word? <laughs> now, full disclosure, we might end up in that joint next year, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> But I, I really do hope that it won't be without a lot of prayer first to say, God, what is it that you would have us to do with our life? Here's why that prayer is so important for you to ask that every single time. You don't know what's five steps, 10 steps, 20 steps ahead of the decision you're making right now. 
Our comfort zone makes us make decisions based on what we can see, and oftentimes there are things behind it that we could have never have imagined, and I don't want us to miss out on all the good things that God has for us because we're stuck in our comfort zones. God's will for your life is outside of your comfort zone. Whatever your decision. Now, please do not hear me saying that you need to turn down every good opportunity. There's a lot of great opportunities that God himself has opened the door for, but not everyone. And if you're going to be a person who follows Jesus, you need to make sure that you're submitting everything, even the major decisions in your life, and giving God, um, uh, giving God the, the veto power on your life. Man, there's a scripture that uh, a lot of people don't like the word because it sounds bad, and um, it talks about submitting ourselves to God. What does that mean to submit yourself to God? One of the ways that I like to think about it is the same way that a writer does to an editor. They take their life, they take their work that they've been working on for however long, and they take it to the editor. They submit it to the editor. They know that in its present version, it's not going to go to print like that. And they're giving that editor the power to make revisions as they see necessary. Maybe for the plan in your life, you need to write it up. Do that five-year plan. All of your goals, do that vision board, all of that. Do it all. And then submit it to God and give God the power to edit it as he sees fit. Uh, another one, a last big way that a lot of us, we can identify whether or not we're being pulled into the orbit of our comfort zones is the way we spend our money. Check your bank account. Check your rewards credit card, see what you've been spending money on. And oftentimes, we say we value generosity to organizations, the church, but our, our, what we say and what we are doing is not lining itself up. I want to turn to a scripture for the rest of today, and um, it's a healthy reminder of what a life lived outside of a comfort zone looks like. If you're new to church or you're newer to church, this might sound a little bit extreme, and it might sound like something that could never fit into your life, but I just want you to allow this to stretch you a little bit and give you a peek about what life looks like lived outside of our comfort zones. Some of these things are declarations that we need to almost speak over our own lives until we believe it. Uh, it comes to us in the book of Acts, uh, 20 verses, chapters, uh, chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. It's written by a man named Paul, and he says this, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Three things I want to pull out really quickly from the scripture. Um, if you're going to live a life outside of your comfort zone, if you want to be freed from the distraction of your comfort zone, you need these three things. Number one, pursue God's will for your life, not what's comfortable. Number two, give yourself to something beyond yourself. Number three, take the next step in the race that God has marked out for you. So number one, pull, pursue God's will for your life, not what's comfortable. One of the most alarming and interesting things about this passage of Scripture is what Paul talks about um, on his way into Jerusalem. So Paul is going to preach, and to, he's a church planter. He starts new churches and cities. And here's what Paul is saying about uh, his thought process as he's going to Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm on my way to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit, that God's Spirit is drawing him and pulling him. But where is God's Spirit drawing him and pulling him? To Jerusalem, not knowing what I'm going to encounter there. 
except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. What Paul is saying is that God himself, God's Spirit, is compelling and drawing him well away from his comfort zone. And here's why. God's will for your life is outside of your comfort zone. I would love it if all of the things that God has for me um, were things that made me feel good about life, things that I had already predetermined about life. One of the most harmful things that you and I could engage in is something called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is applying Christ and adding Christ to a life that I've already chosen. It has many faces, but the same result. Cultural Christianity is always adding Jesus to a life that I have already chosen. But to follow Christ truly means that God, we will allow God to pull us in directions in, in ways um, that's not comfortable, but it is his will. You know what? A lot of times I'll be meeting with someone and halfway through the conversation or at the end of the conversation, they'll say, you know what, pastor, can you pray for me? And I usually ask them this one question. Hey, do you want, do you want clarity or do you want courage? A lot of times we think we want clarity when in reality we really need courage. We really know what God wants us to do. You know what you're supposed to confess. You know what you're supposed to, uh, to do, what the next step is. We just need the courage to actually do it. Here's what I want this week. I don't want you to allow distraction, the distraction of your comfort zone, to pull you away from what God is calling you to do. God's will for your life is outside of your comfort zone. So pursue God's will for your life, not what's comfortable. Even if it's a conversation that you've been dreading for the last year, on the other side of that active obedience towards God, we get to finally see God's provisions. All throughout the scripture, you'll see God calling men and women to do things, and God tells us that God is faithful. A lot of us have never seen God's faithfulness because we've never taken the steps of obedience to see that faithfulness. So number one, pursue God's will for your life, not what's comfortable. Number two, um, give yourself to something beyond yourself. Our comfort zones make ourselves the center, and eventually, before we know it, it happens that all we think about is us. We become the center of the universe, and bad things always happen when we become the center of our universe. Paul says this in verse 24. He says, I consider my life of no value to myself. Now, it's a very interesting distinction. He's not saying his life doesn't have value. He's saying his life does not have value to himself. That is a huge difference uh, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that since my, my life doesn't have value to myself, I'm not going to guard it in the way that other people would guard theirs. Uh, years ago, I had a hoopty, a 1995 Acura Vigor. It was their one experiment with a five-cylinder engine, and it did not go well. And uh, that car had like 250,000 miles on it. I didn't have an alarm. I barely locked it because half the time I didn't start in the first place. <laughs> when I called the insurance company and the insurance adjuster about which insurance package I wanted, I said, the cheapest, whatever the cheapest one is. If someone can start it, then they can steal it. They can have it. <laughs> it wasn't a value to me, so I didn't guard it. You can tell the way that you're guarding your life, your proposed and preferred financial future by the way that you're actually guarding it. Most of us know this fact, though. The lives that inspire us are the ones that were not lived for themselves. Uh, this one pastor said it like this, uh, those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. None of us want that life. Give yourself to something beyond yourself. Number three, 
uh, take the next step that God has marked out for you. There's fancy concepts and big words in the Bible like discipleship, and discipleship basically means this one thing, taking the next step of obedience towards Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to memorize entire books of the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. This is what it means to be a disciple. It means you taking that next step of obedience towards Jesus. What that might mean is just forgiving someone who you've been holding a grudge against. That's it. That's what discipleship is. It might mean signing up for and engaging yourself in more real community, not just surface-level conversations. Whatever it means for you, it means taking that next step of obedience. And here's what I know about Jesus that is so powerful. Jesus calls us to real faith in him, to actually take steps towards him, but he doesn't just beat us up when we fail. He meets us in our failures. There's a story in Matthew 14 where Jesus is talking to one of his followers, a man named Peter, and he calls Peter out onto the water to walk next to him. It's a profound passage that so many people miss out on because they're focusing on the physics of the entire interaction. Peter, while he's walking, the scripture says he, he starts to see the wind and the waves uh, rustling all about him, and he starts to get nervous, and he starts to sink. This is why I follow Jesus. Immediately, the passage says, Jesus reached for his hand, and he grabbed him. Jesus calls us. He calls you to faith, but he will meet us in failure. Whatever step that God is calling you to take, he's calling you to step out in faith, but he will also meet you in your failures. He's that good. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you are present with us. You are God with us. You lead us in powerful ways. You lead us against our own inclinations at times. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage uh, everyone here to take that next step of obedience towards you. You know what that step is, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and wouldn't, wouldn't let us feel comfortable about it until we actually did it. And I'm grateful that we'll see your provision. I'm grateful that we'll see your hand leading us, never forsaking us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.